Well, hey, if this is your first time here, my name is Josh Wilson, one of the pastors here, all right? Hey, we consider it a huge privilege that you would come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Um, we, we pray that God would use this service to be a blessing to you. If there's one thing you could do for us, I know Pastor Brad already mentioned this, but if you weren't here, there's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment, just filling that out, you can turn it into the the box out in the atrium or the welcome desk after the service. One of the options on there is that you, you can get information about how to be baptized here. So if that's you, if you're interested in taking that next step in your walk with Jesus, you can fill that out and you can turn it, out, turn it in and we'll have somebody that will follow up with you within the week. All right. Hey, we, um, we, we ended our Acts series last week and we're starting a new series on the resurrection of Jesus. So As Pastor Brad said, it's Palm Sunday. This is entering into Holy Week. It's an exciting time for us as Christians. So um, we start every sermon off by having a stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'd like to ask you to do that with me this morning as well. We'll be in Luke chapter 19, looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse 28 says this. It should be in your bulletin and on the screen. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill he called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we're thankful um, for this season. We get to think on, reflect on all that you have done for us, your life, your death, and your resurrection, and the hope that brings for us as followers of you. I pray that you would bring a, a refreshment to our relationship with you as we enter into this week. May we think on, reflect on all that you have done for us, Jesus. And I pray as we do that, as we spend time with you, that you would would do unique work in our life and the joy that is in Jesus will be found in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. 
A couple of years ago, Prince William and Kate Middleton, his wife, visited the United States from Great Britain. Anybody remember that? End of 2015. So apparently there's a huge hoopla that happened whenever they came over to visit. So they went and wined and dined with some of U.S.'s largest celebrities like Jay-Z and Beyonce. They went to a Cavaliers basketball game. They got pictures with LeBron James afterwards. It was just a huge, huge spectacle. And after they returned to Great Britain, there were numerous articles that were written about America's fascination with royalty. You can go and Google it, and there will be a, a few pages that will show up that you can just scroll through different articles that were written about this very topic. And one of those is an article that was written by Ariane Chernick. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She wrote it for Newsweek. She, um, the, the article that she wrote was, Why Do Americans Fawn Over British royalty. And so she's a history professor at profession. So she works for Boston University. So she explores just the relationship between America and Great Britain with the theme of royalty in the middle of it. And the way that she ends her article is absolutely fascinating to me. And I I find it fascinating because I believe it hits on an innate desire that every single one of us possesses. And here's how she ends her article. In this respect, the royal visit may allow an opportunity for more than just the donning of lounge suits and brushing up on etiquette. It may also afford Americans a moment, however fleeting, to imagine themselves once again as royal subjects. I think what she's getting at here is that we all have an innate desire for a king. If you look at countries that have a royal line, they're absolutely obsessed with the royal family. You don't have to go any further than Prince William and Kate Middleton themselves, all right? So five, six years ago, they get married, and what we have heard, according to the statistics that they try to bring, three billion people tuned in to watch their wedding. Three billion people. Anybody, like, 100, 200 for your wedding, personally, right? Three billion people gaze into, watch their ceremony as they get married. We're obsessed with royalty. For countries that don't have a royal line, we're constantly trying to create a royal line. So countries like America, we have political dynasties, right? The Kennedys. You have the Bushes, the Clintons. We're, we're so amused by their life. And if it's not a political dynasty for you, it's a billionaire or a sports star or a media star. We're constantly putting people up on pedestals, and we do it over and over and over again, no matter how bad they fail, right? If you look at the, the laundry list of leaders and kings throughout human history, it's just failure after failure after failure after failure. But we, we continue to crown people king over and over and over again. And I think we do that because you and I need a king. We were built for a king. This morning, as we come to the triumphal entry, we see Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. He's, he's going to uh, celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. And what happens as he's entering into Jerusalem is there is a massive celebration that breaks out as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. And I think as we look at this story, we're going to identify two things. All right, The first one is this. That Jesus is a new kind of king. 
And because Jesus is a new kind of king, secondly, he offers a new kind of life. Jesus is a new kind of king, and because he's a new kind of king, we can have a new kind of life. So this story basically breaks down into three different scenes. The first one is Jesus' Jesus's preparation of his entry into Jerusalem. The second one is the celebration of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And then the third one is Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to start with Jesus' preparation. And as we do this, we're going to read through the, that first part. Identify with me, though, Jesus' control over this whole situation. Jesus is orchestrating his entire preparation. He's working every single detail together, and I think he's doing that for some particular purposes for us, and I want us to identify that, all right? So verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. So Jesus is orchestrating all the details to his preparation for entering into the city, right? He, he's calling all the shots. He's saying there's a, a donkey at a particular place at a particular time that I need you to go and fetch for me. And if anybody stops you, asks you why you're doing it, here's what you say. And then what happens? Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And so everything comes to fruition. So they say, might as well say what Jesus told me to say, right? So they replied, the Lord needs it. And the owners give it to him. And they brought the donkey back to Jesus. What in the world is going on? Why would Luke include this in the preparation for Jesus going into the city of Jerusalem. Well, if you were a person of Israel at this time, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was packed with meaning. Absolutely packed with meaning. You can look at a number of Old Testament passages that are pointing to a king that's riding on a donkey entering into the city of Jerusalem. And I want to look at one particular verse this morning together. It's Zechariah 9.9. And it reads like this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As we read this passage, I, I want us to identify two particular things that we learn about Jesus, all right? The first one is this, that Jesus is a promised king of God. The second, we learn the type of king that Jesus is. He's the gentle king, all right? So Jesus is powerful, all right? Don't mistake that. Jesus is powerful. He comes righteous and having salvation. But the type of king that he comes when he enters into this world, he's a gentle king, all right? The first one, the promised king of God. In Genesis chapter 3, whenever sin entered into this world, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, Jesus or God promised that there would be a a coming king that would come into this world and he would put the world back together again. And that Jesus, as he rides on this donkey, he's claiming, I am that promised king. And he's not trying to hide it. He's working, orchestrating all these details as he enters into the city because he's 
proving, he's showing everybody that is around him, I am that promised king. If Jesus is a lot of things, but one of them is not, he's not modest, all right? You can see this throughout his whole entire life. He's constantly making statements that if you want fulfillment in life, you cannot have fulfillment apart from me. If you want a way to God, if you want a relationship with God, there's no other way but me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. If you want to know what God even looks like, how he relates and responds to people, you look at me. I am the picture of that reality. I am the embodiment of God. The Father and I are one. Jesus is not modest in his, his pronouncement and his identity of who he is. And we see that again here. Jesus is not modest. He's the promised king of God. He's powerful, righteous, coming with salvation. But our experience, the, the way that people experienced him here on this earth was as the gentle king. And this is where we see a new kind of king come in with Jesus. All right, so typically if you were a powerful king, you would come into a city You'd ride into the city, and you would get in really good works and a good relationship with the powerful people of that city. All the city officials, all the religious leaders, you would do everything that you could in order to get on their good side. And then you would express your power by taking it out on the lowly people that were there. So you would come, and you'd set up your kingdom, and you'd show how strong you were by being really strict and hard on those people that were considered outcasts or lowly in society. But in Jesus, we get the exact opposite in the way that he is experienced here on earth. Jesus is constantly, if not primarily, concerned with the sick, the outcasts, the sinners of society. One of the questions that's commonly posed to Jesus as he's going through his life and ministry is this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was his reputation. He was a guy that went and hung out with the people that nobody else wanted to be with. And whenever he was asked that question, he would give responses like this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus came into this world, yes, he is the powerful, promised king of God. But our experience of him is a gentle king. He comes for people like you and me. The promised king is one that comes to earth righteous and having salvation, yet he did not come into our lives and exert his power. He extended his love. All this from a donkey. <laughs> All right? So Jesus is coming into the city on a donkey, and through that, the packed meaning of that, he is the promised king of God, but he's the gentle king, the one that doesn't exert his power, extends his love. So how do the people respond to this proclamation that Jesus is making as he comes in to the city riding on a donkey? We see the second scene here, and that's Jesus' entry. It starts in verse 35. It reads like this. They brought the donkey to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The picture here is a massive celebration. At first glance, it looks like Jesus is being absolutely welcomed in as this promised king of God. We see that first through the actions and then through the words of these people. So the actions, all right, the actions that happen, the disciples kick off this huge celebration. They take off their cloaks. They put it on top of the donkey because a king cannot ride on the bare back of an animal. He needs a a royal saddle. So they throw their cloaks on top of the donkey. They lift Jesus onto the donkey. And the whole crowd notices what's going on and they join in on the celebration. They take off their coats and they throw it on the ground because Jesus is too worthy to ride on a normal road. He needs a red carpet. Whenever they do this, they take off their cloaks, they throw it on the ground, they're expressing something. They're saying, all that I have is yours. You are the ruler of my life. You are my authority. Through their actions, it seems that they are absolutely welcoming Jesus in as the promised king of God. We also see it through their words. There's two particular statements they sing as Jesus is on that road entering into Jerusalem. The first one is this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a, a, a line from Psalm 118, all right? And it typically reads, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a welcoming statement that they would say to one another as they came to Jerusalem for this, the feast of the Passover. But what they do is they change that word from he to the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Every single time that you see throughout the scriptures that Psalm 118 is used, is used as affirmation of God's plan. They're saying Jesus riding in on the donkey, his proclamation that he is the promised king of God is God's plan, and we are 100% behind it. The second line that you see is reminiscent of the song that the hosts of angels sang at Jesus' birth. You see, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke 2.14 says this, and recognize the familiarity here. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. They're saying from the very outset, we're agreeing with the angels saying over Jesus. He is the promised king of God. Their actions and their words seem to be saying both together, Jesus is the promised king, and we are welcoming him, welcoming him into Jerusalem as such. But I'm going to argue that this is not what actually ends up happening, and I think we all know that to be true, because five days later, we see everybody turn on Jesus. So what's the actual receptivity that Jesus receives into the city of Jerusalem? Well, we see it with the Pharisees in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. When a king would enter into a city, the gates would open up, the city officials would come out, the religious leaders would come out, they would welcome the king in, they'd take him to the temple or they'd take him to the palace where he would set up his residence. But what we see here. The religious leaders meet Jesus out on the road and they say, stop it. Stop it. We 
We see what you're doing. We see what the people are saying. Stop it. Rebuke your disciples. They're rejecting Jesus as the promised king. I love Jesus' statement because I think it has a lot of weight to it, all right? Jesus replies back to them, I can't stop them because if I do, lifeless objects are going to cry out. The world is going to recognize me as the promised king. Again, he's not being modest. There is a rightful praise that I and I alone am due, and even if God's people aren't going to bring that to me, the rocks are going to cry out. Jesus is he's putting before them this ultimatum. You can either crown me or you can kill me. There's no in-between. There's no middle. I'm either at the center of your life or you have to absolutely reject me. There's no in-between. In essence, I believe Jesus is saying to his, to his disciples, he's saying to the Pharisees, and he's saying to you and me today, I can be your helper I can be your healer, I can be your counselor, I can be your friend, I can be your brother, I can be your shepherd, but not without being your king. Take me in and I'll heal you, I'll heal you of your fears. I can be on the saddle of your life. I can, I can heal you, I can bring life to you, I can make you alive, but not without being your king. I have to be your king. You can no longer be at the center of your life. I must reside at the center, and I cannot share that middle with anybody else. You cannot dabble in me. How do, they, how do the Pharisees respond? How do the disciples respond? I believe we get a picture of what the ultimate reception of Jesus is in the third scene, and that's Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. It reads like this, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. To you. When a king normally entered into a city, he would enter in and he would stand up and proclaim his victories that led him to the city. You would expect as Jesus, as he's receiving all this celebration, all this notoriety, that he would stand up and he would spout off all the miracles that he's performed throughout Judea and Galilee, but that's not what we see here. We get a picture of Jesus at the gates of the city, and he weeps. He weeps. The picture that he puts before you is a picture of absolute destruction of God's city. And it comes to fruition about 70 years later. Rome would come in because of the rebellion that had happened amongst the Israel people against the Roman Empire. They came in and completely demolished the city. And Jesus is telling us it's because they missed their moment. The promised king of God, the very one that they had been looking forward to for years and years and years had finally come. God in the flesh amongst his people and they miss it. 
because you and I participate in that rejection of God, we missed it too. A proud, strong king would come into the city and he would exert his force and say, you will crown me as king. But Jesus is a new kind of king. He is a gentle king. He doesn't come into the city exerting his power. He comes into the city extending his love. And we see that that extent of his love is going to the cross and dying for people like you and like me. Another way of using that word gentle is defenseless. So Jesus was riding into a battle in Jerusalem. It wasn't the battle that they thought or they expected where there was going to be a liberation from the captivity of the Roman Empire. No, Jesus was headed to the battle on the cross where he would fight the ultimate fight with Satan, sin, and death. And if you were riding into a battle, it was, you were destined for sla- to be slaughtered if you came in on a, a donkey. You were better off on foot. But Jesus is a new kind of king, and he enters into the battle on the donkey because he did not come to rule He came to die. He showed and expressed the links of his love for us by going to that cross and dying the death that you and I deserved to die. But he's still that powerful king because the grave could not contain him. Easter was coming. We worship a God who is not dead in a tomb We worship a God who is alive and brings a new kind of life. We worship the gentle king who is extending his love. So what's that new kind of life? What's that new kind of life? It's a free life. A free life. If you look at the expression of what our natural tendencies as fallen human beings are, there's a Christian philosopher that puts it like this. The normal state of the human heart is to try to build its identity around something besides God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and builds itself on that very thing. You see, what happened whenever we rejected God as king is we tried to put ourselves in the position of the king. And because of that, we are constantly trying to prove ourselves over and over and over again that we are worthy of that position of king. And we can't handle it. Our lives are this continual cycle where we're trying to prove ourselves to our, even ourselves to God and to other people over and over and over again, day after day after day. I think one of the most vulnerable interviews that Madonna ever did, she expressed this very thing. She says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but that But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. 
My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. And you and I are in that same loop, that same cycle, where we're constantly trying to prove ourselves over and over and over again. I'm worthy of the position of king. I'm worthy of the position of king. But just as the laundry list of kings in our world, it's failure after failure after failure after failure. How do we get out of the loop? How does it happen? You make Jesus your king. You acknowledge that you are absolutely, completely incapable of working your way to God, proving that you are a somebody. You acknowledge that there is a deep, deep need inside of you for a king, the ultimate king, the new kind of king. Here's the promise, that whenever that happens, the lordship of Jesus permeates your life, and as it permeates your life, you become free. The paradox of the Christian life is this, that the more and more we submit to the lordship of Jesus in our life, the more and more free you're going to be. The promise is that he will make you free. Galatians 5.1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If you need a picture of this, what does it look like for the the king, to come and rule my life and to set me free. We get a picture of that just before Jesus' triumphal entry. He's already proclaimed that he's going to Jerusalem to his disciples, and they work their way through the city of Jericho. And as he's working his way through the city of Jericho, crowds are coming around him. And there's one particular man that has to see Jesus. He's small in stature, and so he climbs up a tree just so he can catch a glimpse just so he can see this very Jesus that people have been talking about. And Jesus recognizes this man, this Zacchaeus, and calls him down from the tree. And again, we see Jesus' reputation precedes him. They say this, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's the gentle king who's come to dine with sinners like you and me. And Zacchaeus, at that dinner, something happens in his life. That loop, that constant cycle where he's trying to prove himself over and over and over again is seen in his identity as a tax collector. It was greed. He turned his back on his people. He was viewed as a traitor because he thought self-worth and proving that he was a somebody would come through how much money he would have, the position that he could have in the Roman government. But what happens is whenever he sits down with Jesus, There's a lordship that happens in his life, and he is absolutely set free. It reads like this. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, notice the title, to the Lord, look, Lord, you are the ruler of my life. My life is yours. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount Jesus does something to Zacchaeus when he meets him at his house. He frees him from his cycle of greed. He's been made whole. He's no longer empty. He's been set free. 
And here's what Jesus says to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to seek and to save people like you and like me. When we bow the knee to Jesus and we claim Him as King, He frees us from the cycle of having to prove ourselves day after day after day. He sets you free. Absolutely free. So, all right, if I'm a Christian, like how do I assess if I'm living in this free life that God has given me, right? How do I know? Like, I want to live into that. I don't want to be caught in this cycle of slavery. I want to be set free. I think there's a lot of questions you can ask. Here, here are a couple for myself that I ask myself, all right? And I, I just invite you to step into it with me, and we'll, we'll close with these two questions. The first one is this. How's my self-talk? We constantly have conversations that are going on inside of our head, don't we? We are constantly, constantly talking to ourselves. Are you beating yourself up? Or are you building yourself up through the truths of the gospel? Because you have been set absolutely free if Jesus is your Lord. I, I struggle with this so bad, y'all. Like, I, I am so critical. We are so critical of ourselves. Oh, I said a stupid thing in staff meeting today. I, I hope Lyle doesn't fire me tomorrow, right? I can't believe I blew up on my kids that way. I'm such a bad dad. I haven't followed through with my commitments that I made to my friend. Oh my goodness, I'm a terrible, terrible friend. The good news for us and the gospel is this, that you are 100% absolutely and completely accepted by your Father in heaven if Jesus is your Lord. So yeah, we're going to fail. But we don't have to beat ourselves up about it anymore. We get to live out of the response of what Jesus has done for us. We are 100% completely, absolutely set free. You are accepted in Jesus Christ. What's your self-talk look like? You're tearing yourself down or you're building yourself up? Second one, when Jesus comes into our life, we no longer have to be at the center, at the core of it anymore, which means we are made full because Jesus is now at the center, at the core, which means we no longer have to prove ourselves to anybody. You are absolutely set free from that. So here's, here's the question that you can ask. Am I fully present with people? Because I no longer have to be the person that's looking over my shoulder. Who walked through the door? Who do I need to go cozy up to to prove myself as a person of worth, as a person of power, as a person of position? I can be absolutely fully present with people just as Jesus was. Whenever Jesus would sit down with people, they felt like the most important person in the room. He would look them into their eyes. He was interested in what was going on in their life. And you and I can do the same thing because we no longer have to prove that we are people of worth because Jesus has already claimed that for you. Are you fully present with people? 
Are you living free from the critique of self, criticism of other people, or what other people even think about you? That is what Jesus sets you free from. You are absolutely, 100%, completely free. Jesus is a new kind of king, and because he's the new kind of king, you can live a new kind of life, a free you crown him, he will do so for you. Let's pray.